0: be a moment. Hey everyone and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host Chef AJ and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. My guest today is one of the most popular guests we ever have on the show, Dr. Joel Furman. He really needs no introduction, multiple New York Times best-selling author, star of several PBS series. And today, he's here to talk about the science of longevity and what is the best nutrition for longevity, and maybe even answer a few of your questions. Please welcome Dr. Joel Fuhrman. Always good to see you and so happy that you live in the greatest state of the nation now.
1: <laughs> yeah, certainly enjoying living out here and all the, all the recreational opportunities it affords. And also, talking about longevity, um, answering that quest, what you, your statement just now Um brings up this idea of longevity because there's a link between gardening and longevity. You know, so we're saying that there's something valuable about growing some of your own food. And I know a lot of people don't have the opportunity to have their own land to maybe grow food, but they can grow sprouts or microgreens or get a grow box in their house or put a Mayway kumquat tree in their living room or something. So, but working with soil, um, making compost, and putting in some um, vegetables and fruits in your backyard if you have that opportunity, is definitely linked to living longer if you have that opportunity to do that. But getting back to the general topic for today, it's that it's kind of exciting, all the new research in the last 10 years that has coalesced around what we've been saying for a long time here. And that is that the human lifespan should be disease-free and, we should, and most people, the vast majority of people, should be able to live between 97 and 107 years old without heart attacks, strokes, dementia, or cancers. Because we don't wanna live longer and be in a nursing home or live longer with disease, but most people in America obviously die before age 85, and between the ages of 65 and 85, they don't have a great quality of life, because they've already started to suffer with memory loss. They're on medications for liver, high blood pressure. They have decreased exercise tolerance and decreased physical tolerance. They can't, you know, let's say go skiing, surf, play tennis, hike mountains, climb mountains, whatever it is they want to, they could do when they're young. They can't do that anymore. And I'm saying we have this ability to age slower, to do the things we enjoyed when we were young and continue to have a, a life that we can be excited about and passionate about without fear. And I'm also saying that medical care shortens lifespans and keeps people indoctrinated with the fear of disease. This interaction, the, this um, you could say woven connectedness between the pharmaceutical industry, the medical profession and the food industry keeps people in a type of prison where they think they're reliant on medications to be normal. They think they have to get blood pressure drugs, statins, diabetic medications, and they don't recognize that the drugs themselves are lifespan shortening and cancer causing, and that they never had to have those diseases that necessitated the use of drugs to begin with. And it's this combination between the diet, the diseases, and the care, because the care isn't involved with getting people to motivate them to live healthier and get rid of their salt and sugar and oil and meats. They're, the care is involved with just treating drugs. And the first thing you learn in medical school is that drugs are toxic; they're poisonous, and they most likely increase risk of cancer for people to um, to take them. And you and by the way, just to make it clear, your risk of the number one cause of death in adults is heart disease. And your risk of dying of a heart attack is very proportional to the number of medications you're on. It's not proportional to the way the blood pressure is because. You could think your blood pressure is normal because you're taking drugs to control it. But if you're on drugs to keep the blood pressure normal, the number of drugs that you need to normalize the blood pressure are indicative of how severe your atherosclerosis is and the loss of elasticity and the endothelial and the inflammation of the endothelial lining. In other words, the 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 um, coronary artery disease and other cardiovascular disease throughout the body. When it's worse, it necessitates more drugs to make it look normal. And, it's the, and, and we know, and the drugs are making people think they're okay, so they don't have to change their diet. So, so the foundation of medical care is incorrect. Now, before we get into the more specifics about diet and what you have to do to live a long life, um, I'm trying to um, explain the concept of how the body works. Because the body's always trying to repair itself and keep itself clean and remove waste products and toxins. So, when we're exposed to toxins, the body is trying to get them out. So, if we started breathing in smoke, we would start coughing because the cough is a right directed response to the smoke to get the soot or the cough or the toxins out of the lung. And when we get a, let's say, a lung infection with a virus or a bacteria, the coughing is purposeful and a benefit of our own longevity to make the mucus come up and not settle into the, the bottom of the lung, and create a pneumonia. So a viral cough, if if cough suppressants don't work very well, but if they did work very well, and if we had medications that were powerfully suppressive against coughs, and we can use opiates for that, then we're increasing a person's risk of pneumonia because the cough reflex is a protective reflex. Fever is a protective reflex too. Fever activates the immune system and demarginates white blood cells. So they're more active against the virus and weakens the virus, the effects of the immune system. So we can, so the immune system becomes more effective at preventing viral shedding and and viral replication. So we're saying the body sets into motion symptoms to try as much as it can to keep itself protected. So, and. I I wanna um, continue with that, with the two examples. Number one, if you're drinking five cups of coffee a day or soda, and now you are a caffeine addict and you stop drinking soda or stop drinking coffee, you're gonna feel bad from stopping drinking it. You're gonna go through detox and you're gonna get headaches and you're gonna be a little agitated. But the agitation or the headaches are again, the instant the initiation of right directed activity of the body to remove toxins out of the body so the so the so if i'm going to take to remove a headache so that headaches in general are the mobilization of toxins in the meningeal membrane of the brain and then we can take drugs to suppress the toxins back in which could be caffeine barbiturates narcotics er ergotamines that these these medications that suppress detoxification but the 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 remedy is the headache. The remedy is the symptom. The drug is making you sicker, and the use of drugs cause headaches now to recur on a more chronic and more and a more generally um, more frequent basis. So the use of drugs, even one or two aspirins or Tylenols a week, can turn an occasional headache into a chronic headache by making the body more toxic. And then people develop more chronic migraines and a migraine could be a more severe type of a regular headache, but the same basic cause. And now the suppression of detoxification through medications leads to more chronicity of retention of metabolic waste and now turns a, a, an occasionally toxic individual into a more chronically toxic individual. And that's the way drugs work in general is that I can give you a a drug to make your blood pressure go down, or I can give you a natural herbal substance, an herbal natural remedy that can make your blood pressure go down or make your blood pressure go up or make your heart go slower or make your heart go faster or make you urinate more and make you urinate less or make you um, go to sleep or wake you up and make you feel energized. But the efficacy of the substance is proportional to its toxicity. These things work, either the synthetic replication of these natural toxins or the natural toxin itself from an herb or or the willow bark tree or something, because they're natural doesn't make them non-poisonous. And if they're efficacious to have pharmacologic effects, then they're also toxic or poisonous. So whether you're getting the drug from the medical doctor or the naturopath or the osteopath or or the herbalist, it's still poisonous, if it has medicinal effects, so the because natural foods don't have medicinal effects. If you eat broccoli, it has nutri, it doesn't have enough toxicity in the broccoli, natural toxins to have a. It doesn't give you a burst of energy. It doesn't wake you up. It doesn't make you fall asleep. It doesn't make you. It has no effect because there's no nothing toxic or poisonous in it. It has to be poisonous to have a medicinal effect. So be very cautious when people are saying, "Oh, I'm going to give you this. It's going to give you a burst of energy. You're going to be able to." you know, feel great. And it's going to make you and be, be, we don't want a burst of energy. We don't want anything to make us feel great. We don't want anything to take away our headaches. We don't want anything to lower our fevers, the fever, the headache, the other the, is all the, the right. It's the body's doing the right thing. So let's take like, a, so, and if we look up the word inflammation in a medical textbook book, like the, the um, pharmacologic and, the path of pathological basis of disease is the name of a textbook written by Robbins and Cotran that medical students um, read when they're studying about inflammation. It discusses that inflammation is the response to an aid to a toxic agent and the, it's the body's efforts to remove the toxic agents, to wall it off, to, to detoxify it, to make it not cause damage and to ultimately remove it and then heal and help heal and reconstitute the damaged tissue. So we have inflammation in response to exogenous wastes. And the word exogenous means coming from the external environment, like we're breathing in smoke or we're smoking a cigarette or we're taking in glyphosate from, we're taking in chemicals or pesticides or we're taking in plastics and seafood, or we're taking in toxins from the external world, world mercury. Those are called exogenous wastes. And the body also produces endogenous wastes. And the endogenous wastes are produced by the body itself, the normal byproduct of, of living, like free radicals and advanced glycation end products and lipofusion and urea and ammonia and all these things the body, the waste the body naturally produces. So we have some cesspool of a mix of exogenous waste and the endogenous waste mixed together. And the body and the liver and the kidney and the skin and the respiratory tract are all trying to, and the digestive tract, are all trying to exude and remove waste products all the time. So we dump waste into the stool. We dump waste into the urine. We sweat out waste through our skin. We breathe out waste through our lung. And the liver deconjugates um, fat-soluble toxins to make them water-soluble so the kidney can then excrete them. So the body's always trying to remove toxins, but when there's an extraordinary amount of toxins that are not normal for the human species to have to deal with, then we might get skin rashes and we might get asthma attacks as the lung tries to push out more waste through the lung. We might might tighten up and get inflamed. We may develop ulcerative colitis and our bowels may become inflamed. We may get lupus and the immune system may start functioning um, improperly. So let's use asthma as an example for a minute and how that's treated, because how it's treated is, it turns a person into a chronic asthmatic and they've gotta be on steroids and immune suppressive drugs for the rest of their life. So they, so a person starts out with let's say an asthma attack. And then we know that the beta agonists, there are both short acting beta agonists and long acting beta agonists, which are vasodilators, which help open up the lung. And those are toxic to the lung. So when you start using them, they enable you to breathe by opening up the lung and maybe they save your life because because the body doesn't know when it's creating mucus and spasm and inflammation in the lung. It doesn't, look, it doesn't really recognize that it inter- could interfere with your breathing and, you, and and cause a medical emergency. It just, so it's just causing mucus and spasm in the lung, which is a detoxification effort of the body. So then we give these people these drugs and uh, which make the drug the lung more toxic and more likely to go into spasm, and we put steroids in the, in the lung tissue. We take oral steroids and inhale steroids, which suppress the lungs from detoxification, suppress the the movement of toxins and mucus outside through the lungs. So we push the toxins back in the body, and we cement into place an occasional, an asthma attack into a chronic asthmatic who needs drugs the rest of their life. Instead of looking at the, instead of what we do to reverse asthma, obviously, and get rid of a person who don't have asthma attacks anymore, is we get them eating a diet style with a low toxic residue, and we fuel the body with a with a high amount of quality of, of phytochemicals from colorful plants. We stop them eating fried foods and and other toxin waste products and foods, you know, chemical wastes and, the the processed foods and the, and, you know, we get them eating what I call a nutritarian diet, rich in nutrients to promote healing. And then we keep them on the steroids to suppress inflammation. While we take off the irritating beta agonists, we get, get out, get rid of the long acting beta agonists, get them so they're not using rescue inhalers or, you know, things like, you know, albuterol and, and, um, And then we can slowly over a period of, let's say six to nine months, or even sometimes within three three or four months, start to wean them on, gradually lowering the dose of steroids while we've cleaned up their diet, let the body start to detoxify and and, and, um, initiating and enabling other channels of elimination, other than just being the body depending on lung for elimination, reducing the level of both exogenous and endogenous waste, and gradually get them down so we can so they can breathe as there are no steroids. And should they start to wheeze or breathe abnormally as they're coming off the steroids, then we can put them on a fast or juices or or we can get them to get rid of the last bit of residual inflammation. And we can get this person free. Now they could run races and sleep through, then go take exercise class and take dance class and climb mountains, and they can get rid of their asthma for the rest of their life. But we've but with but a whether you went to a, a allopathic physician or a naturopathic physician, they wouldn't have the opportunity to get get rid of a person's asthma because they have a cure mentality. They have a remedy mentality. And people in this culture are indoctrinated with this remedy mentality that they see the remedy as the treatment and they don't see the disease as the treatment. And as we remove the cause of disease and allow the body to cleanse itself naturally, then the body doesn't need to initiate these Healing crises that are seen as an asthma attack, or psoriasis, or an immune system attack on the body, or you know, or chronic um, allergies and infections. So, so in other words, um, what I'm saying right now is the body is remarkable. It's really a remarkable machine that tries to keep itself protected and prolong its longevity when fed properly. And so we have this unique opportunity in human history to live longer free of disease because disease is not the natural state It's completely unnatural and is the result of unnatural living and putting the body under too much stress. There weren't all these autoimmune diseases like lupus and psoriasis and asthma, and there wasn't all these people with headaches and all the cancers. There wasn't all these diseases throughout human history. This is mostly these diseases of modern history as we put more poisons in the body than the body could tolerate. And the use of antibiotics also perpetuates and exacerbates these issues as well. So what I'm saying right now is medical care worsens the development of chronic disease and actually facilitates aging and increases risk of cancer and shortens people's lifespan. Exposure to medical care, whether it's vaccines, antibiotics, and other drugs through through childhood and later on in later life, is seen as like the victories of modern society and that we enable, we're saving all these lives through antibiotics and vaccines and drugs. And we're not recognizing how resilient and resistant the body is is to disease processes if we lived in a healthy manner that wouldn't necessitate the need for these drugs and vaccines and antibiotics. And, and then we'd be able to facilitate longevity. So longevity has to do with yes, eating right, getting enough sleep, regular exercise, emotional poise, happiness, passion, and, and, and having a clean, high nutrient diet. All these things are critically important. But the avoidance of of treatments and remedies, like taking popping Tylenol and Advil and putting pills in your mouth to reduce symptoms all the time, that's that's necessarily important. That's a necessity if you wanna live a long time is avoid the need for medicinal substances because they're toxic. And that includes remedies from, from the natural remedies as well. So I'm just giving this overall Basic understanding of how the human body works, and the human body. So we have to be able to differentiate the healing of the body and the body's self-protective efforts from the from some other process that is more important to in, in to, to act quickly on with medical care. And sometimes in with emergencies, medical care could be life-saving. But and generally, if we continue the life-saving effects of emergency care. Then we move that on to the cr- treatment of chronic medical conditions. It's the treatment of chronic medical conditions through drugs that shouldn't be part of medical care. That should be part of um, you know, nutritional and other methods to get the body well.
0: Can I ask you something? Cause I was actually taking notes and when you said the suppression of the detoxification occurs with medication. And I'm curious, Dr. Furman, if the same thing can happen with toxic foods. The reason I'm asking, I was teaching a class and I always tell people, do the least restrictive program you can do that will give you the results you seek. And this woman was saying she was able to do the diet for two days, but she felt so terrible. So she had a tuna fish sandwich and a glass of milk and she felt better.
1: Well, I've been telling, that's been my message for the last, 20 years I've been teaching that. And I don't know why I'm so isolated and the only person teaching that message. It seems like I'm the only person teaching that. And that what I'm saying is that what people think is hunger is not hunger, it's detox. They're driven to overeat from withdrawals. And they think cramping in their stomach, fluttering and headaches and and fatigue and agitation are hunger, and they're not. They're detox from their poisonous diet. They're not healthy enough to feel real hunger. Real hunger is felt in your upper part of your chest, by your lower part of your neck. So what I'm saying is, yes, we that's um, that is a basic tenet of my teaching for the last two decades, and that is that when people the, the people's diet is so toxic, and they build up tolerance to those toxins from regular use, and when you stop the toxicity of a diet and go to a clean diet, the body has the opportunity to mobilize toxins and repair itself. And that causes discomfort, withdrawal, detoxification, and it results in symptoms that are intolerable to many people. And those feelings, and a lot of people think hunger is fatigue too. And they're eating to keep up their energy. I have people that come here, they're a hundred pounds overweight, and they're eating giant portions of food. I'm saying, why are you eating double the amount of food I need? Well, I, I, got I feel too fatigued unless I, they have to overeat to keep themselves you know, out of this cycle of fatigue. The point I'm making, of course, is absolutely in agreement with what you're saying. People have to be warned in advance that they're temporarily going to feel worse when they start eating healthier. But that feeling worse is good for them. Because the feeling worse means the body's removing toxins, and in a week or two they'll feel better. But most time, it goes away within five days. Most people feel worse, with, and they can even feel flu-like. They can even get mild fevers. They can even, and they're in their rooms with headaches. Just imagine if people stop drinking alcohol, or they stop drinking five cups of coffee a day, or they stop doing any poisonous or addictive substance. They're going to feel temporarily worse, and obviously, the most powerful and dangerous addiction is food addiction, it kills more people than anything else. You know, my kids used to say, um, you can't say food addiction is more dangerous than cocaine addiction. And I'm saying to them, well, it's not necessarily more dangerous if everybody snorted cocaine, but since everybody is a food addict, it's much more dangerous considering the amount of people who are food addicts, maybe the number of people who are cocaine addicts. You know, So even though heroin addiction and cocaine addiction may be somewhat more dangerous, food addiction more kills many more lives because we have so many more millions of people who are food addicts. You know, and food addiction is the number one cause of death because, but in any case, yes, absolutely. People want to go back to their old diet and they have physical, psychological, and emotional addictive withdrawal. And the physical withdrawal takes first, then the psychological withdrawal, and then the emotional withdrawal. So a person who's off, off cigarette smoking for six months they're no longer physically addicted, but they're still emotionally addicted. They're still missing their cigarettes at times. They still see other people smoking, and they still have this longing for wanting to smoke, even though they're not physically addicted to it. So, yes, we're dealing with um, foods that are highly addictive, and people come up with any kind of illogical rationalizations to continue their addictions because it takes over the primitive part of the brain. The, the lower part of the brain is taken is um, affected by Addictive tendencies. So we're in internal conflict. People are having internal conflict within themselves. It's like a person on each shoulder. One is to, you know, obviously eat vegetables and salads and healthy food. And the other is saying to themselves, you're not going to be able to do this. And what fun is that? I'd rather be dead. And you know, if you had to eat like that, and I food is for fun, and life is for fun, and you should be able to eat what you want. It's not going to make a much difference. And people any kind of rationalization why it's okay to self to behave in self-destructive behaviors, and the brain has um, is part of their their own brain. You could say is part of the enemy talking, and that's why people sometimes need um, counseling and. They have to strive for abstinence, and they need um, support to enable them to to resolve those addictions. And the longer they stay away from these addictive substances, the more they feel better and the more they can recover from their physical addiction, psychological addiction, and emotional addictions. So absolutely is the answer to your question.
0: You're really one of the only people that talk about how feeling better doesn't mean getting better.
1: Right. Feeling better, feeling worse is getting better. Feeling better is getting worse. (laughs) Should I say that one more time? Yes. Feeling better is getting worse. Feeling worse is getting better. So you have to temporarily feel worse to get better. But if feeling worse is too bad, like you can't breathe with asthma or it's it's something, then, then you need some intervention to ease the speed of getting better. But we don't suppress it completely like a regular doctor would. So I have a completely different um, modus um, of operandi. You know what I mean? A completely different um, modus of operandi. A completely different operating system when look people are looking to get well. And that's why we have people recover from ulcerative colitis and psoriasis and lupus and rheumatoid arthritis and psoriatic arthritis and connect, mixed connective tissue diseases and fibromyalgia. That's why we're people getting well from their asthma and getting well from the chronic headaches and getting well from c- chronic body pain. That's why we're able to use longevity nutrition as a therapeutic modality because without the understanding of this detoxification process, and and suppression of toxins back into the body through symptomatic relief, the person can't ever get well. I don't see how doctors, I don't see how people can get hardly anything. It's so difficult to get people well unless you understand these principles.
0: Yep. Thank you for the work. And also you're one of the few people that talk about abstinence versus moderation. I mean, most of even in the plant-based world, you know, they they say, you know, a little cheat here and there is fine. But because see, they're not food addicts, Dr. Furman
1: exactly a person's not a food addict and cheat once in a while but a person's a food addict it just it it stimulates them to go on binges and they gain the weight back they yo-yo their weight up and down they don't stay with it and, and we know that the um the more overweight you are and people who are overweight are all food addicts and, and there's no such thing as a healthy overweight person and it's all been their brains been taken over by the foods they've been eating and they've lost control of their own behavior so we're talking here about um getting people back in control of their own life. So they're in control of the keys to the bank and they can live their life the way they want to live their life and not have to worry and have the fear of disease. And I'm also saying that medical testing and medical treatments keeps people indoctrinated in this religion of modern medicine. And it's believing that doctors have the answer. They have all the answers and that we have to be on drugs. And we get sick, we go to a doctor. He's going to tell us what to do. And we have to be on medications the rest of our life to control our symptoms. And this, and, and we need medical testing, blood testing, chest X-rays, mammograms, colonoscopies. Um, we need all this chronic, getting examined all the time by doctors. We need chronic medical testing to make sure they can catch these diseases early to treat them earlier so we can save people's lives. And we have to be chronically being in fear of being, being catching some disease that needs to be treated early by your doctor, which is also fear mongering and is also shortens people's lives because it keeps them in chronic medical fear. And they're chronically um, thinking of have, coming down with some condition and going to doctors to be checked for these conditions they're gonna come down with, instead of living their life with freedom, with optimism, with passion, with excitement and feeling they have a body that's designed to be disease-proof and diseases can't get you. The COVID can't get me. Cancer can't get me. Heart attacks can't get me. I'm, I'm living a protective lifestyle. I don't have to live in fear. I don't have to go to doctors. I don't even go to myself. <gasps> oh, <that's laughs> I say funny. that joke all the time, just because it is. it, it is fits, funny it fits into my monologue, you know,
0: that's no, you. Yeah. Hey, you know, <laughs> since you have more time now, why not do a little stand up? <laughs> I think you'd be great. You know, what you're proposing, it's not what's taught in medical school. So how is, I mean, you know, because people, even people that follow a health promoting diet might get into an accident. They might get sick, but when they're not going to you and this is the paradigm.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm not saying people who get into an accident shouldn't get sewn up and fixed by doctors.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Really? You can't
1: won't cure everything? (laughs) But unfortunately, that's not, you know, most people are in the hospital today because of, you know, obviously their bad diet and, and other uh, other issues that they didn't have to do. They didn't have to cause the destruction of themselves. And of course, it starts out, you know, early in life. It starts out with the socialization process of using food as a reward early in life between Halloween and birthdays and every other celebration, you know, soccer games, bringing donuts and whatever it is that Parents do to reward children with junk food, they get they start to develop this addictive personality in in childhood. So we we train our children how to become addicts, young, and then they move on. They move on sometimes to alcohol in high school and, and other drugs, and sometimes they move on to drug addiction, and sometimes they just stay with food addiction. But our socialization process and in, in our country and in the modern world is essentially recruiting people into an addictive. Um, way of living that then creates these epidemics of heart disease, heart disease and cancer.
0: Yeah. One of the things I admire about you is you're not afraid to speak the truth. And I remember several years ago, it was before the pandemic, you were speaking at a conference. I don't want to necessarily mention the name because they're still doing it online now. And, and you were talking about how horrible the food was they were serving. They were serving bagels, they were serving pizza, And and you were like the only one calling it out
1: oh yeah, it was so so ridiculous. Some of these health conferences serving junk food, you know, it's like, I know, I know I've kept sometimes I've, um, had some people be a little mad at me for being, um, being honest, maybe, I don't know.
0: Yeah. Well, Heather, so much,
1: there's so much nonsense out there. And there's a lot of, you know, as you know, myths and errors in the in in, in all these in the vegan community in the health food community there's all types of half of the stuff people think is right is or just myths they're indoctrinated with and they they're um so they're
0: well you know you know i've had you know i let people speak their truth on the show but even some of the doctors say that the way that we think is too extreme and we create eating disorders and orthorexia so
1: you know there's no such thing as orthorexia that's just their you know (laughs) So that's, it's ridiculous. You know, you can, in other words, what they're saying is it's better to smoke cigarettes than not to smoke. Right. That's something wrong with a person who doesn't smoke. It's better to be, to drink some alcohol than no alcohol. It's better to eat some junk food than no junk food. That's just utterly um, insane. And it just shows you how insane society is and how they're the people voicing that are addicted, are addicted themselves, you know, because if we're enjoying our, because obviously when, we're no, when we've ridden ourselves of addiction, then we enjoy the way we eat and our food tastes better and we make fantastic recipes. We're not, get, we're not losing enjoyment in life. We're living our life in control of our own life and we're not letting addictions control us. So these people who've let addiction control their lives have come up with excuses and they, they call, they, they, call um, they throw names because they're at people who are not addicted. That's just ridiculous, you know?
0: You know, I was thinking the other day, like if I had like a, a diagnosis that I, you know, I knew I was, you know, a fatal diagnosis would I change the way I eat, because now it wouldn't matter. I could be fat. I could eat anything. And the truth is, is I love the way I eat so much. I mean, the only thing I thought was like, well, maybe, maybe I need a little popcorn because I don't allow myself that because I can overindulge. But other than that, I wouldn't really change the way I eat for any reason.
1: I think that, yeah, I think have the same way. I enjoy what I'm eating. What what would I do differently if I, you know, if, Exactly. Yeah. So that's right. You, you, people like what they get used to eating anyway. And because we're foodies and we, we're like health nuts, health nut foodies, then we spend extra time and effort to make the food taste better. We spend extra time and effort to make great tasting recipes so we can enjoy our health You know, our nuttiness. The point I'm making is that we're eating a better tasting diet than most people are eating. We're enjoying our eating food and we wouldn't change anything. We love the way we eat. And also you feel better when you eat this way. Absolutely. You you just feel like crap. If when you go, when you don't eat healthfully and who wants to feel poor, you want to enjoy your life, have good bowel movements, sleep well at night, not be indigestion and not, and, you know, and be able to be active and do things and, and not be, you know, and also when you're not eating salt in your diet, you're not losing electrolytes in your sweat and in your urine, your body holds on to sodium. It's not excreting it out. So now when you're exercising or sweating and playing tennis or climbing mountains or only for a 10-mile hike, you don't need to electrolyte replace. You're not getting cramps in your legs because you're not pushing out electrolytes when you sweat because you're not on a high-salt diet. People always say, don't only have to take salt tablets or electrolytes. Or... Well, all these athletes are cramping up because they're on a high salt diet because they're pushing a lot of sodium and other electrolytes. The body doesn't just selectively remove sodium. It takes a lot of uh, other minerals along with it when it excretes the extra sodium you're consuming. So you lose minerals in the body, including sodium, when you're on a high salt diet. And us, the, when we eat the sodium present in natural foods, which is maybe one-sixth the amount of sodium, one, one-fifth the amount of sodium other Americans are eating, then the body becomes effective at holding on to its electrolytes, its minerals, and we can sweat without losing sodium and we can urinate without losing sodium. So we're, we're fine with the, you know, and it gives us the ability not to have to drink as much water, to go out on a hike and get stuck in the mountains and be hiking up a, you know, a mile uphill and, and, and not have to worry about um, carrying gallons of water with you, you know, and, and worrying about getting into trouble.
0: Yeah. Well, then again, you know, the people that don't eat the sugar, oil and salt, again, we're such outliers and, and people say it's too restrictive and it's too difficult. But I think for people that struggle with overeating, taking out the salt, it's when it just, it's, it's so hard to overeat when you're not having salt.
1: It's, it's so perverted and weird to be putting salt on your food. And people just, they're so addicted to it and indoctrinated because it deadens your taste buds for salt and it deadens your taste buds for other accessory flavors that are not salt, that are not even salt. And then they think they got to have salt and everybody's excuse gives excuses as to why oh, it's okay to use a little salt or it's okay to use this or it makes the food taste better and you know the only reason you should use salt is if you're a person who's anorexic or in a nursing home and you lost your ability with aging and sickness you've lost your taste buds and you're not eating food enough and you could use these things as appetite stimulants but other than for the rest of the people it's just it's but, but anyway, we can go on to a different subject. I
0: know. Well, well <laughs> Stephanie said she watched a YouTube of you making tempeh bolognese this morning. Do you have a cooking show that we're not aware of?
1: I may have one that I'm not aware of. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because my daughters, my my staff, including my mostly my daughter, could pull other cooking videos and sh- th- things I've done from my past. And I might have done it 10 years ago and they could put an excerpt out of it and put it up on the internet. As some- and it could be me from like five years ago doing uh, something. I don't know what she's putting up there. I'm not looking over it. She's not asking me. She's just pulling out something, putting it up there. So I don't know, maybe I'm doing something. Oh,
0: different. that's funny. That's funny. I'd love to get to some of the questions that were submitted, but there's something I've always wanted to ask you. I've interviewed you so many times, but I've never quite asked you about this because uh, actually this person that wants a regular slot on my show is a big fan of weighing and measuring food and I just feel that is just a counterintuitive thing and I don't think it really helps people with weight loss or food addiction unless they're willing to do it forever and I, I don't know if I've ever heard you speak on how you feel about that.
1: I think it's neurotic and I think it, it it's too unnatural and it shows that people are not having attached themselves to instinctual eating yet. And if and you don't need to weigh and measure food because if you're not losing weight, you can just modify the food you're eating, eat more lower calorie food like bigger salads, more eggplant, cauliflower, roasted peppers, mushrooms, and bear, wild blueberries and blackberries. You could fill up your plate with more artichokes and asparagus. I mean, artichokes are like 25 calories and filling and high in protein in there. You know, so it's so easy to modify your food intake to lose weight. Why would you want to weigh and measure thimble-sized portions of food for the rest of your life? And you can't even feel like you're satiated on thimble-sized portions of food. It's not a long-term strategy for success. It's better to get your body acclimated to to be able to do it more naturally, not eating to your full, visualizing what's on a plate, eating more rich, high-fiber, high-nutrient foods, and, and giving you that assortment of different types of food on the plate that satiate you long-term after the meal. When you mix together a little bit of, of some of green vegetables, of course, I'm also encouraging people eat mushrooms and onions and peppers and things, but when you use green vegetables with or without mushrooms, onions, and peppers, And you have some low calorie food like cauliflower, eggplant, mushrooms in there. And you have a small amount of beans in there. And you have maybe a small amount of grain or starch in there like quinoa, amaranth, teft, oats, plietti squash, um, winter squash. You have some kind of when you have this and a little bit of nuts and seeds in there. And don't forget, nuts and seeds are critically important because we're talking about longevity nutrition and we absorb 20 times as much of the phytochemicals and longevity promoting nutrients when you have even a small amount of nuts and seeds with the meal, like a half an ounce. So we're saying here, so now I'm saying when you have a variety of foods at the meal and we have this unique opportunity to have nutritional variety, it's so emotionally satiating. It's very, you get a good protein load. It digests slowly. It keeps you from wanting to eat through the whole for four or five hours. It's very long lasting. It's glycemically favorable and people don't have to weigh and measure food. You know, so we're saying we're trying to get people in touch with this instinctional feeling of hunger, and we're looking to get hungry for the next meal. We want to get hungry for the next meal, because when you get back in touch with hunger again, one of the symptoms of hunger is increased taste sensation. So a person came to my office, they visited me, and they brought me this soup. And they said, hey, Joel, I want you to try this soup. It's so delicious. You're going to love it. And I'll say, oh, thank you so much. Let me put it in my refrigerator, and I'll wait to when I get hungry before dinner, I'll have it. But, I don't, but now it's two o'clock in the afternoon and I just ate lunch at 12 and I'm not going to be hungry again until five. And I don't want to eat before I'm hungry because number one, you don't really have the full digestive capacity. These glands that, that dig, secrete digestive enzymes squeeze out all their enzymes onto the meal and they could take hours to refill again to be ready for the next meal. So we want to, for good digestion, we want to have the body finish digesting that meal completely and have some rest time for hunger to come back to then eat again. So, and it doesn't matter if you eat a little bit more or a little less at the meal, because if you eat a little bit more or a little less at the meal, you'll be hungry sooner and you can just bring that other meal a little sooner. So we're teaching, so the body already has built into it the instinctual drive to direct you to the right amount of calories if you listen to it and know how to interpret the signals. So we yeah. don't have to come up with measure, weighing and measuring food. We can teach people how to read their body and how to get the most pleasure from eating, And how to adjust the meal to control to meet their own metabolic needs. If they're a person who's hard to lose weight, we can adjust that meal metabolically in that direction by increasing certain foods and decreasing others. And if they have more need for more calories because they're a more professional athlete, we can modify it in the other direction somewhat by giving you know. So we can adjust the meal for their own needs, and we can get people comfortably. And I'm always saying that you're on a you're a nutritarian when you're eating super healthfully and you're at your ideal weight. And that means your body fat's less than 15% 15 for a male and less than 25% for a female. And by the way, my body fat's at 11%. So when I'm saying when a male should be less than 15%, it's certainly achievable if I'm 69 at 11% body fat. And, And the next thing, or you're a nutritarian, if you're overweight and you're losing at least two pounds a week, at least a kilogram a week, if you're overweight and you're not losing a kilogram a week or two pounds a week, then you're not on a nutritarian diet or a nutritarian program. Because then you're over, if you're, eating, if you're still eating healthfully, then you're eating too much of the wrong foods and too much food. So then you're doing something wrong. Because we know when people are under my supervision, they most of people lose 20 to 25 pounds the first month and about 15 pounds the second month and about 10 pounds thereafter per month. And that... We know that if we're looking for the body's estrogen levels to go down, the inflammatory markers to go down, the insulin resistance to go down, the production all the, the production of um, of cytokines and lipokines, these inflammatory uh, markers off the fat supply, the promotion of angiogenesis, all these markers that mark disease creation go away when a person's overweight, while they're still overweight, they're going away, if they're losing at least two pounds a week. If they're overweight and they stop losing, you see these inflammatory markers go back up again. You see the estrogen production goes back up again. You see the insulin product, the insulin resistance go back up again. So when people regain weight after they lose weight, they're back to where they started from or worse, because the regain of weight is really bad for promoting these um, aging and disease promoters. So like a person came to my retreat, let's say, for example, they lost 50 pounds, right? And they leave now, and they go to a, a, to Las Vegas buffets or on a cruise ship, and they gain back 10 pounds. They lost 50, they gained back 10, they're 40 pounds down. I'm saying when they gain back the 10 pounds, they're at higher risk of having a heart attack, they're doing more damage to the body when compared to when they were 30 pounds heavier, because it's the direction of travel of your weight that makes the body goes into these inflammatory disease-creating states. So as long as you're dropping weight steadily and doing the right thing to steadily lose weight, you're gonna immediately decrease your risk of having a heart attack or stroke or having some chronic disease happen to you because your body's repairing a lot of the damage as you're losing weight. So to repeat that, you're a nutritarian when you're either eating right at your ideal rate or you're eating right and losing at least two pounds a week if you're significantly overweight. If you're not, if you're significantly overweight and you're not losing two pounds a week, you're doing something wrong.
0: Yeah. You know what I never understood about the weighing and measuring programs is, you know, they're still eating oil, which I think if you eat oil, you better measure, but they limit non-starchy greens to seven ounces. That's crazy. And they give everybody the same program, regardless of their height, weight, age, activity.
1: Yeah. And even if they weren't yeah, why should we limit greens? Because obviously greens are the only food that has no threshold effect on longevity studies. But do you know what? People don't know what I just said, but let me, re- let me explain what I just said. Mushrooms have protect- are tremendously protective against cancer and promote longevity, but they have a threshold effect. The threshold effect means once you're eating a certain amount of mushrooms, once you're eating, let's say, a third of, to a half a cup of mushrooms, eating a cup or two cups isn't gonna extend your lifespan more. You already had the half a cup. You already had a third of a cup. Eating some mushrooms each day is very important, but having a lot of mushrooms is not important. You just have to have some. Eating some flax seeds or chia seeds is super important. But once you have that tablespoon a day, eating two or three or five or five tablespoons isn't you more benefit because you've already got the lignans and the benefits from that one. see, it's not gonna be like a, a dose dependent relationship where there's no threshold. We eat five cups of flax seeds a day. Well, maybe that'll help you more. That's ridiculous. It doesn't work that way. These, these foods have threshold effects. Once tomatoes have a threshold effect, once you eat a certain amount of tomato sauce, you're getting the full benefit. But greens have no threshold effect. The studies on longevity, studies on centenarian studies on green vegetables show that people move from one cup a day to two cups a day to three cups a day to four cups a day to five cups a day. They still have they still have enhancing longevity. There's we don't we haven't found in the amount of people eating greens any threshold at which they've met the point where they've achieved the optimal longevity amount. It seems that the more greens you eat, the longer you live. So I'm saying eat four or five cups a day. But with tomatoes or onions or mushrooms or other um, important cancer-fighting and longevity-burning foods, you don't have to eat that much of them. You just have to eat some of them. So greens have no threshold, and the more you eat, the better, and they should not be restricted.
0: Thank you. you know, I know it's popular for uh, that people put a half a cup of flax seeds in their smoothie these days,
1: yeah, that is dangerous, by the way, because it's not even good to have all so much of uh, your so much calories from one food because there's thallium and cadmium. there's other and depending on where they're grown, there's different soil toxins in various foods. And if you have too much of one food, especially a cadmium-containing food like like flax seeds, it's not going to be beneficial to your longevity to have a whole half a cup or a cup of flax seed a day. I'm an advocate of flax seeds, of course. I'm wanting people to eat it, but not to have that much of it. I'd rather they have, and I don't have, I have what I do with my breakfast, by the way, is I have one tablespoon of flax seed, one tablespoon of chia seed, and one tablespoon of hemp seed. And I put that into my wild berries and my wild blueberries. I use frozen wild blueberries and some fresh blackberries and things. And I put either a little bit of oat or a little bit of quinoa or a little bit of amaranth in that with a plant milk, you know, sometimes with maybe. um, So that's basically my go-to breakfast. Sometimes I'll eat like a tofu jerk, piece of tofu jerky with it or a a dried sweet potato with it or something. I love my tofu jerky. I'm like, it's like my. um, you know, it's just like a piece of extra firm tofu that I dehydrated for 20 hours in a dehydrator with a, tom- I take tomato sauce and I put a little tomato paste and mustard in the tomato sauce. And I put a little, of my Thai curry sauce that I sell, you know, onto it. So I mix a little Thai curry sauce into it to make, and I put this thick sauce and a piece of tofu and I dehydrated for like 20 hours in a dehydrator and I cut it into little strips. So I have like my little tofu jerky as a little treat with, you know, but in any case, I love that stuff. Um, Do you
0: make your sweet potato jerky too?
1: Oh yeah, well, I bake the sweet potato at a low temperature in the oven, like at 310, 310 for like an hour and a half and I shut the oven off and let it stay in the oven until it's soft. Then I slice up the sweet potato and put it on the sheets and I dehydrate that for, 100, for at 125 degrees for 20 hours as well. It's really incredible. The reason I started doing that was because I used to go to the dog store and buy dried sweet potato for the dog as a dog bone. And I said, there's no other ingredient in this besides sweet potato, what's, why can't humans eat this? So I, and I said, I'll make it myself. So I started finding <laughs> them and trying, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread, these dried oh. sweet potatoes. Oh my goodness, that's funny. So we're, you're eating dog treats basically, yeah. Exactly. Oh, and the dog loves the dehydrated tofu because they're chewy like bones. You know what, there's something about a, a plant-based diet that you miss. And that's like chewing on a lamb chop or chewing on something that's hard and chewy and hard to chew. And by making some of these like tofu jerky or... Or sweet potato jerky that's really hard. It gives you like something in your mouth for your teeth to really gnaw at for a long time and really chew down on your teeth. And it's good exercise for the mouth and the jaw to chew this to chew this down instead of everything being soft and mushy. Uh, you know, it's, it, it's good to keep your because obviously we want we want people making smoothies and drinking everything. We want them chewing and using their teeth, and the utilization of a muscle and a bone helps strengthen it and keep it healthy. And you want your dogs to chew things, and you can and the sweet potato or tofu jerky is something hard to chew on that's not going to damage your teeth would be too hard like a bone would, you know.
0: I have a dehydrator. I'm going to try that. Thank you. Dr. Furman, Evelyn wrote in and wants to know, is it ever too late? She says she's reading your book, Fast Food Genocide. And the section called The Younger You Eat Better, The Better. You write that there is a point where it is too late to prevent cancer after ages 50 or 60. I'm 65 and just recently started eating a whole food plant-based diet. Is there still a chance I can slow down whatever cancer may be already in my
1: body? I never said a person can't or after they're 60 or 65 can't prevent cancer because we have hundreds of people who've had prostate cancer, for example, and their PSAs reversed and got back to normal again. Even they had cancer, let alone not, even, not only prevented it, they reversed it. I even have numerous people who had metastatic ovarian cancer and metastatic breast cancer who were given limited lifespan, less than one year to live, who are alive today more than 20 years later with advanced cancers. And they, they would have never lived this long I have one woman who had cancer, came to me in 1997 with metastatic ovarian cancer that spread to her lungs and was given six months to live and she's still alive today. What is this? 23 plus three, that's 26 years later, she's still alive today after metastatic ovarian cancer. How could that? So obviously um, we have tremendous ability to resilience, to to repair broken DNA crosslinks, remove methylation defects and remove carcinogens and detoxify them and remove them from cells. But that's why... I'm such an advocate for such a high degree of radical nutritional excellence, because you need this degree of excellence to reverse the accumulation of defects and toxicosis that has occurred in the body from unhealthy living. So absolutely, you're still living. You're not dead. Why can't you get in better health then? My mother's a perfect example. My mother's um, second husband, my father died around 20 years ago of um, CLL, of a chronic lymphocytic leukemia. And he was exposed to like poisons during World War II with bomb explosions and stuff. But, I don't, but anyway, my mother, um, second husband just passed away a few years ago, and they were living in Florida. And she moved here to San Diego because to be close to her, her son, and she could eat here at the retreat. And she was eating somewhat healthily, but her husband was probably a bad influence. And, her, and so we're talking here at 93 years old, she was very fragile, I think very close to death, And now she's been living here at the, and now she's 95, just passed her 95th birthday. And she's in better health now at 95 than she was at 93. She's, you know, she went to the dance. She went dancing with us the other night and she did ballroom dancing and she's doing, and she drives the car and she shops and she travels and she hikes and she does all kinds of stuff. And she's hiking better and more physically active and more physically capable. And her blood pressure is better controlled. And she's doing better now than she did two years ago. She improved her health between the ages of 92 and 95.
0: That's amazing. That's so inspiring. Yeah. I've been interviewing a lot of people that are in their 90s on the show. And it's in one of the things I'm finding is one of the links they have is that they all are active. Like you say, they garden. They do some kind of movement every day.
1: Yeah, really. It's really great to do that. And I'm saying that um, there's some emotionally emotional and psychological benefit we get from gardening and eating some of the food we grow our own. I I don't forget that in the in past. The history of this nation, like the Victory Gardens during World War I and World War II, more than half of the calories consumed in America were foods that people grew in their own households. I, I need to say that again. More than half the calories consumed in America were foods people grew on their own land, in their own house. That means they bought less than half of their calories. They made their own calories. They had gardens. Instead of growing grass lawns, they grew food. Plant vegetables and plant fruit trees and make your house a source of regenerative organic agriculture, and learn how to grow—you know—make compost and make plants. Because it's not just the health-giving effects of the plants; it's the benefits to your own um, emotional well-being and your connectiveness with the natural world that increases human lifespan. There's some advantage to working with soil and to growing food and to eating food you grew yourself. There's a psychological, and I get a tremendous amount of pleasure and a brag, you know, um, you know, want to brag and share. Look at this fig I grew, look at this beautiful bok choy, look at this, you know, papaya, look at these passion fruits or whatever, this um, dragon fruit I grew on my own tree. Here, have one. Take one of these. Look at the taste this food. It's so good. You got to try it. I grew it myself. There's something so much fun about growing and sharing foods you grew yourself. That's somewhat inherent in our um, you know part as part of us.
0: Yeah, that's rewarding. You know, I know you're a big fan of onion because it's in your G bombs. And here's a question from Elle. And she says, Dr. Furman, do you have any suggestions for someone who's trying to follow your plan but cannot eat onions or garlic due to serious stomach and bowel issues or someone who doesn't eat them for religious reasons? Hing is not a viable substitute. I'm trying to get more taste in my food while also keeping it SOS and gluten free.
1: Well, I don't know for sure the answer to that question, because I don't know if scallions would be acceptable. If they can't eat onion and garlic, can they eat some scallions? It grows above the ground because scallion is a tremendously powerful longevity promoting anti-cancer food. So they can just type the, you know, so I hope that could be a substitute. And for people who don't like them or can't digest them well, I'm suggesting they don't remove them completely from the diet, but instead titrate them down to the smallest level in which they still can um, not have symptoms. In other words. Is a quarter of a teaspoon too much? Would that make you sick? Can you tolerate a teaspoon of it? Or do you only feel bad if you had a cup of it or a half a cup or a quarter cup? What about just a little bit? What about a half a teaspoon? Would that work? So it's better to have a little bit because what happens is, is that people who think they can't digest them, the body can learn how to digest them by producing the bacteria that aid in their digestion if you have them regularly, even in very small amounts. It's like people who don't digest beans well, we still wanna give them a little bit of beans, maybe a teaspoon of beans with every meal because over a period of months, they'll be able to move up to two teaspoons and even a tablespoon with each meal and maybe even more down the road because we've trained the body to learn how to digest it better. So if there's some emotional or religious reason, Maybe we could hide it in the foods. You don't even know what's there. Uh, personally, I think it's a big mistake um, to utilize religion to achieve bad health. Like if your religion is telling you to smoke cigarettes or to imbibe in some unhealthy substance or to do something that's, um, you know, not good for other people or yourself, I think that you should pre- that your own self protection is most important. And most religious authorities, most religious people will say, if it's a health condition and you need to do it for your health, that comes first. There's no religious entity gonna be against you for something when you're trying to protect your own precious health, (laughs) I think that's ridiculous.
0: Thank you. Eileen says, Bell Palsy, I had it over a year ago, now it recurred on the other side. Can it recur again? Reoccur again, please ask Dr. Furman."
1: I think Bell's palsy can reoccur, but we're talking about um, the question is, why is this person's immune system suppressed, allowing this disease to express itself? So it always goes back to, let's look at your diet, the amount of sleep you're getting, the amount of exercise you're getting, if your omega-3 fatty acid, if your omega-3 index is adequate, because don't forget, this is the Achilles heel of the vegan diet, is that having a low omega-3 index, too low of omega-3 index, especially some people who don't convert short chain omega-3 into long chain omega-3 well enough, and their omega-3 is very low, could predispose them to more inflammatory illnesses like Bell's palsy or, or other, um, or, and we're talking here about susceptibility to toxins as well. So let me say this one more time. I'm saying that I have a unique position as probably the only physician in America we have taken care of a large amount of vegan populations who are elderly, who are eating healthy vegan diets. We're talking about the American Natural Hygiene Society and the American Vegan Society in, in Malaga, New Jersey, as being a physician taking care of L people much older than myself who were vegans for more than half their life, and seeing what was the ultimate um, problem they developed as they got very older. And we're talking about a lot of them developed Parkinson's disease and dementia. And that those, and I have this um, vast amount of experience seeing these people who are not on junk food, vegan diets. They were these natural hygienists who were eating fruits and vegetables and beans and nut, raw nuts and seeds and were eating healthy diets. But the point is I'm saying is that right now we have more accumulation of evidence that a low omega-3 index is linked to all cause increased all-cause mortality and susceptibility to toxins in the environment. In other words, the brain becomes more susceptible to be damaged by pesticides when your omega 3 index is low and so that's so there's a link between the sensitivity to the chemicals that can cause parkinsons and low omega 3 index and that's something this person with with um Bell's palsy should look at. And it's why the leaders of the vegan movements in the past from the American, such who developed like Kiki Sidwa and Herbert Shelton and and all these people and the head of the natural organic movement, all these people develop Parkinson's disease even though they're eating super healthy diets.
0: Great, thank you. So Keisha wants to know, uh, her husband had his blood work done and his hemoglobin is high at 17.6. I Googled it and they said 17.2 is normal, but anyway, what can he do to naturally lower it? His diet is more vegan. He eats lots of homemade white bread, lots of oil-free air, French fries, tofu, pasta, soy, blueberry yogurt, and canned fruit and fruit juice. You're probably not going to think that's a very healthy diet. <laughs>
1: Well, they have, the best thing to do is, you know, I'm not gonna be able to answer that question here. She'll have to, he should read my book. My most recent book is Eat for Life. And the reason I, even though I've written 12 books, I've written you know maybe 20 books considering booklets, but the major books have been on 12 books. And the reason I'm mentioning Eat for Life is because it has the most updated references and more than 2000 scientific references that every paragraph is documented appropriately with numerous references showing that there's corroboration, increasing the degree of credence of what I'm suggesting people do, a high degree of credence with the association of many studies that corroborate each other. So he needs to learn more. And as he adopt the whole program and not looking for one magic bullet. Yeah.
0: Jill wants to know if, if, if your diet could help with seasonal allergies.
1: Um, I'm glad she they asked that question because I've dealt with a lot of numerous people with seasonal allergies over the years. And my experience has been that it doesn't get better in the first year of doing the diet. One year, the next year they get hay fever season, they're still blowing their nose. But the second year they do the program, after the first this year two, they get amazing reduction in allergy symptoms. So the answer is yes, it just takes a real long time to do it, but you have to do it right and you have to do the real thing. And you don't be discouraged if the first year of doing it, you still have allergies. But because I've been doing this for so many years, for decades, I've and I've taken care of so many thousands, tens of thousands of patients, I've seen people get well from their seasonal allergies. Even people recover from cat allergies and and, um, you know, dander and, and hay fever, and I've seen it go away, and people's, and asthma, and I really felt really great about some of those cases, because that's the really, that's the bread and butter of people suffering all over the place with asthma and allergies and cat allergies and hay fever. And the fact that it can go away is really, um, can help a real lot of people.
0: That's fantastic. Uh, Carol wants to know about vitamin D. Her recent blood work showed the level is 12. The doctor wants me to take 50,000 units once a week, but I don't feel comfortable with that. I started with 5,000 a day and feel really terrible when I take it. Are there other ways to get vitamin D, such as a tanning bed? I live in Wisconsin.
1: Well, that's a really good question too, because 12 is dangerously low like the the normal range is considered 30 to 50 of 25 by truck. So let's say 30, 50 is considered normal. And I usually tell people to take about 2000 IU a day to get that level, you know, living in Wisconsin, to get a level between 30 and 50. They can't get, you know, sun, enough sunshine. And I don't really recommend people get too much sun anyway. I don't. I'm, I'm saying I'm not recommending people get sufficient sun exposure to keep their level between 30 and 50, because sometimes that amount of sun exposure it would take to get their level between 30 and 50 can cause skin damage. So we're talking, it's better to mix the sun exposure with a small amount of supplementation so you don't have to expose your skin to to overly, for some people especially, to overexposing their skin. Now, most people, we're talking about 95% of people can hit that level of at least 25, because once you're taking 2,000 a day, let's say, and you're already at 25, that's good enough. Don't take more. So, but now you're 12, that's dangerously low and that could lead to increased risk of chronic illness and osteoporosis. But taking 50,000 a day, and that's D2 is also not good either. It's very unnatural. And now the person, now the doctor, prevents you from ever knowing the right dose for you, because you get 50,000. How do we know if 2,000 is the right dose, if 1,000 is the right dose, or if 3,000 is the right dose, or if you need 5,000? We don't know, because he gave you 50,000. Now, we'll never know what's the right dose. We're better off picking a normal dose for you, because you weren't taking vitamin D, and then in three months, repeating the test, and seeing if that normal dose, not a super high toxic dose, is going to be enough for you. Because what I'm saying right now Yes, you don't want to be deficient, but extra vitamin D and taking too much can also be unfavorable. We're talking about blood levels above 50 in some studies have shown increased risk of breast cancer, for example. So we don't want to push you to levels of vitamin D supplementation that you don't need. You only want to take the amount you need. So I'm suggesting taking 5,000 a day is not unreasonable, but I would probably, since you're taking none, have you take just 2,000 a day. There's no rush to get you up there. You've been probably low for months, for years. Just take 2,000 a day. And in three or four months, repeat the level and see if you're above 25. And if you're above 25 then you stay with 2,000 for, for for thereafter, if you're above 40, 40 you can t- go back so you can lower it a little bit. But in any case, if you're below 25, then you can take an extra 1,000. Then you can move to 3,000 a day if you're below 25. This is not rocket science. But once you put that 50,000 in there, then you never know what you're going to need for the rest of your life.
0: Yeah. How do you feel about tanning beds? Are they
1: effective? I think they increase the risk of skin cancer. So I wouldn't do it myself. I don't think they're they will age your skin, and there's no point in aging your skin to get vitamin D.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Um, this is the last question that's been pre-submitted, and you can decide if you want to take any from the chat. But this is from Jean. She says, Dr. Furman, I need to gain weight on a plant-based diet. However, the calorically dense foods like nuts and seeds for me cause food addiction which I wish to avoid. Are there healthy, non-addictive vegan foods that you recommend?
1: I don't know what she's talking about. How could she be losing weight and say it causes food addiction, but it had too thin. But anyway, let's go on to this because the, the answer is, is that um, you it's the same thing you do to lose weight to a degree lesser degree. You do it to gain weight. It's by making, it actually is making that mix of green, bean, grain, and nuts and seeds. Now the grain could be another starch. It doesn't have to be grain. It could be grain or sweet potato or squash or something like that. But we're talking about to gain weight, you wanna have, and grains are good. By the grain I'm talking about, the high protein grains are amaranth and quinoa and teft and kamut and oats but a little bit of grain with a little bit of bean with a little bit of nut or seed. And we're talking about, if you're looking to gain weight, you have to bring the nut and seed up to an ounce with each meal. It's a sauce or you're making it, mixing with a vegetable sauce with a dessert. It's not going to make you an addict. It's not going to produce addiction. It's measured, you know, and what do you mean? You're going to eat too much of it. That's eating between meals and that's snacking on them. It's using over amounts of that. But if you have, the mixture of bean and nut and grain and green in the meal, you'll help you gain weight and get good muscle complement. You could actually get good muscle penetration, good pattern of amino acids. It'll help you gain weight. It'll keep you from, um, so it help. And we do that with athletes. We give them a mixture of beans. And another little trick to increase their to push for people who are athletes is to mix some soybean with the other bean. That means you're actually having some edamame, or dried soybeans mixed with the other bean, which is usually lentil, red kidney bean, or zuki bean, or lentil. I said lentil, lentil, zuki bean, kidney bean. So you have to mixing that, and you're mixing that, and then you would be amazed at how much um, sustain sustains your muscle growth and your ability to handle heavy exercise. Because I want to be out there skiing all day long and exercising half the day. I don't want to be tired out. I want to be you know out there getting a lot of you know having fun all day long. And I'm, I'm working in the garden digging holes all day too but so, so we're having a diet that sustains hard work in other words yeah for nice. people who need that amount of calories we you know
0: nice well Dr Furman it's great talking to you I hope you'll come on you know as often as you're available because my audience loves you and they love just hearing from you so thank you for so much what you're doing
1: my pleasure you too uh, okay have a great month everybody nice thank space. you so much
0: thank you and thanks all of you for watching another episode of chef AJ live please come back tomorrow when my guest is Dr Colin Zoo take care